that tonight's Shi'ur, actually the series, has been sponsored by Tehillah Brooks in loving memory of her mother, Dina Bukhaya <coughs> And tonight specifically is, um, is um, sponsored by Diana and Andrew Reinhardt in memory of their son, David Yosef Ben Abraham, should be at least neshama to both of them. We are now, after Purim Cotton, which was Adarishan, and we are obviously uh, approaching the real, uh, the real Purim, Adabes, um, <clears throat> very shortly. So it's really in many ways very appropriate to talk about Purim. But Purim has an enormous amount of depth. <clears throat> there are many questions one can ask about Purim. You know. Now we all know the story, obviously. You know, you have the hero and the heroine. You have uh, Mordechai and Yavesa, right? Every story needs a hero and needs a heroine, right? Uh, and of course, every story needs a villain and an accomplice. Well, we got that also, right? We have uh, Achashverosh, who is really, it's hard to know if he's a villain or whatever. Uh, I think personally that he's a, he's a terrible person. Chazal apparently, I'm not sure if he's a Shoite or Russia, you know, whatever, it's anyway. <clears throat> I vote that he's a Russia, but anyway. Um, in any case, uh, and of course Haman, who in many ways is the arch enemy of the Jewish people, certainly at that time. <clears throat> and of course uh, Haman decided he wanted to destroy the Jewish people, all of them. And what's interesting is that that was the last time historically that the Jewish people were under one government, one empire, Persia. That was the last time. After that, the Jews, in many ways, were spread. But he really had the opportunity to truly destroy all the Jews. Um, even in our recent time, Hitler Machshemai couldn't do it because obviously there are Jews all over the world, right? And America and so on, you know? But of course he wanted to destroy European Jewry. But Haman could have done it. He could have destroyed every single Jew. And after that, the Bansha made sure that no Jew, the Jews would no longer be under one empire, so they would have that ability. <coughs> In any case, <coughs> Persia was very, uh, a tremendous empire. I mean, Megillah starts off with 127 provinces and so on. That was under the Persian rule. So clearly we're talking about an incredible government. Now, when you think about Purim, <coughs> other than the story itself. There are questions that come up which are not easy to answer. And I would like to bring those questions um, to be able to in some way deal with these ideas. Especially the concept of Haman. Because we learn tremendously, tremendous valuable lessons from Purim, as we will see. One of the questions that we can ask about Purim is this. Why is Purim two days? You know, when you have a war, right, then you, of course you're going to have victories in different locations. You're going to have uh, uh, victories in different locations. And uh, ultimately what happens is when you finally win the war against the enemy, 
right? Then what happens then is that uh, you make a, uh, you can commemorate and celebrate, which is what Chazal said, that you have to commemorate Purim, which means you have to remember the incident, the event, and we do that by reading the Megillah. You also not only commemorate it, but you also celebrate it, which means you have to rejoice. So therefore we have, of course, the Su'udah. That's why we do it. So it's not just a commemoration, it's also an enormous celebration for obvious reasons. Because the Jews, of course, were rescued, uh, and there was a tremendous uh, salvation for the Jewish people. But the question is, it was one empire, Persian Empire, it was one enemy, basically it was the enemy. So what they should have done, right, is wait till the end of the war, and then celebrate and commemorate one day for everybody. For instance, you had, um, uh, we know that uh, in all, most of Persia, the Jews fought the Persians on the 13th of Adar, and they won on the 14th, they were victorious. But the Jews in Shushan, they fought them for an additional day, and they won on the 15th. Now what would you think? It's one enemy, right? It's one empire, one, one nation, right? So everybody should be celebrating on the 15th, because that was the end of the victory, right? Why do we have two days? You see, we shouldn't. We surely really only have one day. So the question is, what do Chazal see that they decided that Purim has to have two days? One is for everybody, basically. And then the second day, which is the 15th, has to be for people who live in a walled city. Because Shushan was walled, and therefore they said that everybody who's in a walled city should commemorate it and celebrate it just like at that day. The question is why, you know? And you can also ask, what does a walled city have to do with this? I mean, it's a historical fact, it's really an archaeological fact, you know, and, and so on, uh, that the, uh, the architectural fact that it was walled, but so what? Why should that make a difference that you got to include all the walled cities in the world, not only that had a wall at that time, but if they had a wall from the time of Yeshua ben Nun. So th th there's something going on here that we need to understand. It's not, it's obvious there's something that begs explanations. You see? Second thing, uh, we need to understand Haman. Haman sees a person, <coughs> right, Mordechai. And Mordechai, and everybody of course bound, bound to him, because Haman is a grand vizier. <coughs> He's basically the second most powerful man in the Persian Empire. You know, and as such, he's an incredible personage. You know, I mean, to be the Persian Empire anyway is the greatest in the world, and he's the second, which is incredible when you think about that. And he sees this, this person, Mordechai, doesn't bow to him, you know? So he becomes incensed, and he wants Mordechai killed. But first he says, who is this guy? So his uh, entourage tell him, it's, Mordechai is a Yehudi. And then he decides to kill everybody, all the Jews. Now, there's something that doesn't make sense here. <clears throat> Haman is not stupid. You don't become Grand Vizier by being an idiot. Although, I may have to take that back when you look at America. But in any case... <laughs> but in any case, uh, the guy's not an idiot. So, Ennis, what do you, what do you get? You're, you're getting angry at, uh, at uh, Mordechai? You know? Okay, so punish him. What do you have to kill the guy for? I mean, Haman is a guy where everybody bowed down to. He was getting covered honor 
in glory all day long. Okay, so he didn't bow to you. Why kill the guy? But what's even more important, why should you kill all the Jews? What, a, what kind of a racist concept is that? Now remember, Haman is not an idiot. We're not looking at a madman. Because a madman, like I said, they don't become grand viziers. You know, these people have to be very rational and very smart and very politically attuned, obviously. Uh, so why would he want to kill the Jews? But more that, because the Jews contributed tremendously to the economy of Persia, obviously. So why kill people who pay tax, who are royal citizens? And they were. Because when Achashverosh made his meal, which we know, right, lasted who knows how long, right, the Jews joined the Suda, and that was problematic, obviously. So they're loyal citizens. So what do you want to, why kill them? Because of Mordechai? There's something that doesn't add up here. Uh, you see, <clears throat> I mean, you know, people dismiss it and say, okay. But when you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. Why a man would ki kill loyal people, right, uh, that contribute heavily to the economy of Persia, which is what they did, obviously. So that, that's a question we have to really ask. Another question is, <clears throat> the Megillah is always mentioning Haman, but when it does that, many times it says, Haman ben Hamdasa, right? Ha'agogi. Uh, what are you always mentioning the Yichus, his genealogy? You mentioned it once, and that's it. <clears throat> but you'll find in the Megillah, it mentions it many times, who he's connected with, who his ancestors were, who his forebears were. Why? Why do that? You see. <clears throat> And then we come to the, the, the which is a very, a very interesting concept, where he wants to kill the Jews. So he goes over to Achashverosh, because obviously he needs the permission of the king. And he says to him, well, there's a nation, they're divided, their religion isn't like our religion, you know. And, uh, and Achashverosh buys into his argument. And of course, he was going to, of course, uh, shortchange the empire. Millions and millions of dollars if you kill all the people. So of course he contributed 10,000 talents of silver, which is Stalin's estimate is worth $100 million. That's how wealthy he was. He was a very wealthy man, you know. <clears throat> and, uh, and the question is, <clears throat> why is he doing that? To give all this money, it's costing him a fortune to give money to kill the Jews. And when you think about the, the, the pretext, it's absurd. He's telling Hashverosh, uh, well, they're all divided, they have different religions, they're not like uh, us. What are you talking about? Hashem should have looked at him and said, are you out of your mind? Why? I am king over 127 provinces or countries, whatever, right? And it says, Kiksovim, Kilishoinim. Each one has a different culture, a different language, a different script, right? So what are you talking about? The Jews are just one of 127. So the question is, what is Haman saying that was so convincing? Because you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. Achishverosh uh, had a kingdom that was completely segmented and divided. Everybody had a different language. In fact, when they sent out, you know, the commands of the king, it had to be in the language of the country, right? In the script of the country. So what are you talking about the Jews? Of course they're going to be different than everybody else. Because everybody's different than everybody else. So the question is, what's Haman talking about? You see. Strange. You re when you really think, when you look at it, what's called with a reasonable eye, things begin to not add up. Now, 
Who is Haman descended from? We know, it's Amalek. It's an Amalekite. He's a Persian Amaleki. That's really what he was. Okay. Uh, so therefore, let's take a look at Amalek. Now, if it wasn't for the fact that the Torah says that Amalek attacked the Jewish people, right? I would never believe it. It made no sense. But of course the Torah says it, so you got to believe it. Of course it happened, you know. But it defy what Amalek did defies logic. Same thing with Haman. What? Why? Let's take a look at this. <coughs> Why did Amalek want to kill the Jews? What's their problem? Was it an ideological problem? The Jews were religious, obviously. But Amalek, there are people that think that Amalek were not, were atheists. That is a mistake. In those days, there is no such thing as atheism. It's paganism. There was no atheist in those days, you see, because everybody believed in God. You just happened to believe in different gods. But there was no atheism. Atheism is a modern day invention, basically, you see, and because of science and, and evolution. Uh, because until then, you couldn't be an atheist because there are two questions that always stared you in the face. One, right? How did life originate? How? In the entire universe, basically, nobody's ever detected life. How did it come? You see? And the second thing is, how do we understand that there are millions of different species? They don't even resemble each other. You see? You have animals, you have insects, you have plants. Do you know that there's 30,000 different species of... of um, uh, that's 300,000 species of beetles. <laughs> There are hundreds of thousands of species. As scientists estimate that there's either between 10 and 100 million different species. Not different insects or whatever, but they look different, you know? So the question is, how do you explain the origin of species, you see? So along comes Darwin, he tried to give an answer, which of course is nonsense, and so on, which I will mention. Uh, but the idea is that the, they were not, the, so atheism is only possible, basically, if you have some type of scientific alternative explanation. But in those days, we're looking at something that happened 3,000 years ago. They don't have that kind of stuff. What do they know, right? They don't know the complexity of the universe or the complexity of the planet Earth, right? So everybody would believe in God, except it was paganism. So if you're a pagan, Amalek, what do you want from the Jews? You believe in God. And they believe in God. What's your problem? That's the first question. Why did they attack the Jews? It wasn't because of ideological reasons. Because everybody was pagan. Second problem. Okay. Israel, the Jews were not a military threat. I mean, that's usually why countries go to war. They're not a military threat at all. Because the Medrash says that, it, that Amalek had to cross five borders in order to get to the Jewish people in the desert. Five. Well, if you're five borders away, you are not a military threat. You see? It's not like the Jews threatened Amalek. So then, why are you attacking them? They are not a military threat. Makes no sense. The third problem is even worse. Do you know what it costs to mount a war? The United States and Iraq, right? When they were warring in Iraq? Do you know what it costs when they were fighting Saddam Hussein? 
in Iraq and so on. One billion dollars a day. It's a lot of money. Right? It's a lot of money. Why? Because you know what it is to transport soldiers and supply lines and all that, right? Now think about that. If Amalek attacked the Jews and they're five borders away, how long was their supply line? Think about that. And not only that, there were millions of Jews. That means they had to raise an army that was staggering. Do you know what it cost to raise an army of that proportion? And to supply them with food and everything else that army needs? And remember, they couldn't take it off the countryside because it was the wilderness. That's where they were, the Jews. So where were they going to get it? Right? So it cost them a fortune to war with the Jews. For what reason? There's no military threat, right? And there's no ideological or religious threat. But what, what's the problem? It's incredible. Another problem is they just wiped out Egypt for whatever reason. Whether the Jews or God, whoever wiped out Egypt, the Jews had a part in it, right? Okay, so therefore they knew it was a suicide mission because Egypt is the greatest nation on earth. All right? You don't start up with the greatest nation on earth that just wiped out Egypt, which is the greatest nation on earth, it's suicide. So they knew they were going to get killed. So then why are they going to war against the Jews? Does this thing make any sense? Of course not. Uh, you know, it's like the whole Amalek became psychotic. <coughs> That's what it sounds like. And besides that, <clears throat> there's another question. Why does God hate them so much? Why? You know, there are a lot of nations in the world that want to kill the Jews. It's been going on for thousands of years, you know. So why does the Rebbeim say, right? Kiyot al Kesko, the hand of Amalek is against the throne of God, right? Behold, door door in every generation, I must wipe them out. Why? You see, wherein lies the unbelievable enmity of the Rebbeim to Amalek? That's a very important thing for us to know. Because clearly it means that there's something unique about Amalek which does not exist in other nations. <clears throat> well, there we are. A whole bunch of questions. And when you think about it, none of this makes sense. You see. Amen. <clears throat> <clears throat> so how are we going to answer this question? You know, and obviously it's got to be a good answer, or else you're going to go home and demand your money back. <clears throat> the truth is that what happened on Purim is profound. It's a tremendous uh, explanation of what we need to understand. And there's really, you, as you will see, there's one answer really that explains all of this. It's the profound reason why the Rabbanisham hates them in that sense. And it's also why Purim is so great. It's, uh, it's uh, you know what they say, you know, uh, which is greater, Yom Kippur or Purim? So Purim is greater because Yom Kippur is Yom Kippurim, a day like Purim, right? But it's not as great as Purim. And the question is, what does that mean? How can Purim be greater than Yom Kippur? You see, so we're obviously looking at it, and not only that, it says in the end of days, 
that all the holidays will be bottled, except Purim. It's amazing when you think about that, you know? So therefore, everybody's going to look forward to their homentash, and we're going to still have that, right? And the suda, <coughs> and so on, you know? And of course, I can't uh, leave out the liquor and the wine. You know, that's the most important thing, right? Um, you know what they say? They say that, you know, people, Purim, you know, you're supposed to drink until Adela Yoda, till you don't know the difference between Mordechai and Homan, right? But people, there are many people that are very religious. So they are, it's called Zrizim Magdimen. So six months before Purim, they already begin to get drunk. <laughs> you see. And then what they do is they, how could you leave Purim, right? So for six months after that, they also keep drinking. You see? And it's of course all because of Purim, right? That's the only reason why. In any case, <clears throat> how do we begin to understand this? And the answer is that it's based on a profound understanding of the psychology of man, of human beings. What does that mean? <clears throat> you know, we all grow up from infanthood and on. That's how we start, right? And because of that, <clears throat> the human mind realizes something. We're very much threatened because growing up, we're helpless. We realize we're weak and we are vulnerable for many years. You see, growing up, we need our parents to take care of us, you see. But what happens is the human mind realizes that we are basically weak and vulnerable to threat. And it never stops because then you have to rely on other people. You got to rely on jobs. You got to make sure that there's money coming in every day. <clears throat> you know, it could be fired or whatever, you know. Life in many ways is very threatening because life always threatens your ability to survive. And in the end, survival is the main thing, you see. So therefore, human beings are always looking, in a certain sense, to deny that weakness, that vulnerability, you see. So what do they do? So therefore, a person will always have what's called delusions. Uh, I want to tell you something interesting. Even though you may not realize that, mankind is always interested in three things. Either a person believes that he is God, or he wants to become God, or he wants to overthrow God. It's one of those three. Even though a person in reality realizes that really it's not, but we, we, we walk around with delusions of omnipotence. You know, some people walk around with delusions of adequacy. But we walk around with delusions of omnipotence. Deep down, we really think we're somebody, you see? And that's why everybody's always trying to perpetuate their name. That's why people give millions of dollars to buildings and plaques, you know what I'm saying? We're always trying to, in some way, promote our existence, make sure we're still around, uh, you know, uh, make sure that we can survive, you see? So therefore, basically, mankind, in many ways, has to deny their inferiority and their vulnerability and their weaknesses. That's why it's always difficult for anybody to accept authority. Because authority, if you have a boss, and he says, by the way, I want you to do this, you need to listen to the guy, or he'll fire you. You see, nobody wants to take orders from anybody. Well, you to tell me what to do. But you can't say that, because you need the job. You see, <clears throat> so every kind of, basically many kinds of situations are always there proving that we're vulnerable. You see, that's why most people hate to work for a boss. 
And when that boss takes advantage of a situation, it's very bad. You know, why? Because it's not only the, the difficulty of working for anybody and having to accede to his request and so on, uh, but the mere fact that you need a boss automatically says that you are inferior. That state itself is a statement of inferiority. That you are weak and vulnerable and you got to come out to other people to survive. You see, and when you add that to all the experiences you had growing up of vulnerability and weaknesses, you see, <clears throat> and, and you add that to the present day, all of us are walking around, you see, with a sense that, uh-oh, I got to make sure I can survive into the next day. That's, by the way, one of the reasons why self-worth is so important. Do you ever notice most of a person's life is he has to feel like somebody? Why? Animals don't have to feel like they're somebody. The only thing an animal is worried about is survival. So he's worried about territory. You see, if you mess up in his territory, he's going to come and the animal's going to come and kill you. Because survival is the name of the game. But humans have another drive. It's called self-worth, self-esteem. We're always worried that we're nobody. So we always have to convince ourselves that we are somebody. Somebody. That there's something there. When, when you think about that, it's really irrational. Of course you're somebody. You exist. Existence is its own self-worth. You don't have to prove you're anybody. You exist. You see? The question isn't who you are. The question is what do you do with yourself? That's really the question. You see? <clears throat> so why are we always trying to prove with somebody? You know? And the answer is to deny the fact that we're always threatened by everything. And therefore, mankind cannot tolerate, basically, any authority over him. He has to if he wants to survive. But basically, it's painful. I don't care who your boss is. It's always painful for somebody to tell you, I want you to do this, especially if they give you a deadline. You know, it's painful. Now, where is that leading us? Because it leads us to a very important idea. Uh, because of this, because of this, mankind has a dilemma. A dilemma is, you are damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. Okay? What does that mean? That's a dilemma. It means anywhere you go, as they say in Yiddish, is no good. What does that mean? It means this. <clears throat> We've got a problem. If you believe in God, you've got a problem. You see? Because what does God say? You've got to listen to me. You know? You have to be obedient. Right? You need to... I will, and, 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 and I, you will have accountability, you see, to see if you listen to me. But God, in many ways, to somebody who's weak and vulnerable and needs to feel like he's somebody, uh, in many ways, uh, uh, the, the religion itself or belief in God uh, threatens the ego of a person automatically. Now, what happens? Therefore, a person has to now make peace. I believe in God, but at the same time, I have to believe in myself. Right? I cannot admit that I am weak, you see? I cannot admit that, that I'm inferior. So what people do is they develop brilliant strategies that they can believe in God, or in some sense, an, uh, some type of power, and still make believe that there's somebody you see because all of us are always trying to assert being 
that was somebody. <clears throat> See, and ultimately, deeply, what a person, like I said, is doing, either a person thinks he's God, like Paroi, Paroi in Egypt felt he was God, okay? Or we want to become God, or the Mauritian wanted to become God, didn't they? That's the original conflict of man. Because the Nochosh, the snake said, and you will be as God. Now, that was tempting to Adam. Why would the Nochosh, the snake, which is really the Satan, why would he present that possibility if Adam wasn't thinking in some way of becoming God? There's no temptation, you see. <clears throat> so clearly, Adam himself was thinking about, hmm, how do I become God? Because wow, look what he did, he's incredible. You see? <clears throat> and the other idea is to overthrow God, and that's Migdal Bovel. They spent a whole, whole, imagine a whole society spending all that money to overthrow God. And the truth is, how high can they go anyway? 500 feet? You know what I'm saying? And, and, and they think that they're going to have the ability to overthrow God. Now, why is this obsession with God? That you are God, become God, overthrow the man. Not the man, but you overthrow the Rebbein you know? Because in the end, the greatest way to deny our inferiority is to be God. Perfect solution. Uh, that's why. It is the greatest solution that we can have. Now, if that's the case, so here's what happens. So how does a person make sense of the fact that he believes in God? He's got a dilemma. Because if I believe in God and that he's absolute, i got big problems now. You see? So i got to solve it. So therefore, mankind solved the problem. How? Well, let's take a look. I'm going to give you 10 different solutions. And each one is a belief system or a religion. And I mean a major religion. They're nothing more than solutions to this dilemma that mankind has. One, well, the easiest way to solve the problem is you're an atheist. You don't believe in God at all. So, perfect solution. You don't feel inferior, right? Because there's no God telling you what to do. But an atheist has big problems. You see? He has to really fool himself. Why? Because if you look at the world, the world has an incredible complexity. You see? The world is unbelievably complex. How did it come here? You see? The human brain has 100 billion neurons. Staggering. But it's not the neurons only. It has quadrillions of connections between the neurons. The brain is the greatest, uh, it's the greatest um, structure in the known universe. There's nothing that beats the, uh, uh, beats the human brain. The question is, how did it form? Chance could never do this. It's absurd. And that's just the brain. What about all the other organisms that exist on the earth? Each one different. In part, chance, which is the only alternative, then a uh, designer could never have done this. So you really can't be an atheist too long. In fact, there's a famous guy, I don't want to call his name, in England, who's a very big skeptic. He's an apicurus. I mean, he didn't believe in God, he's an atheist. And he used to, you know, he used to promote this atheism. I think he was an Oxford professor, if I recall correctly, you know? And um, what happened was, I think he, he was 83 years old, and he announced that he now believes in God. So they said, what do you mean you believe in God? You know, what happened? She says, because I looked around and I realized it's just too complex. It's impossible. You know, I mean, think about that. <clears throat> How does a person come about? DNA. 
right? The DNA. The DNA is unbelievable. It has two billion rungs of chemicals. And not only that, the DNA, if you took it out of the cell, the nucleus of the cell, and you stretched it, the two billion rungs, it would stretch to six feet. Six feet. So what did God do? He took six feet worth of chemicals, squeezed it together, and puts it into the nucleus of a cell. That's beyond belief. Was this evolution? Chance? So he said, it's just too complex. So therefore, atheism is a way, it's a strategy, but it's really a poor way. Okay, what's the next strategy to avoid God? Agnosticism. Well, listen, I don't really know if there's a God or not. And until he appears to me, you know, I'll do what I want. You see? He has to appear to me. So agnosticism is a strategy of how to deal with the fact that there's a God they just say, I don't know. You see? And if I don't know, so I don't have to listen to anybody. There's no dilemma here if you're an agnostic. You see? Then there's a third way. Okay. There is Aristotle who believed that God exists except he has nothing to do with the universe. Do whatever you want. So there's the solution to the dilemma. Right? He exists because he's the first cause. But you can do whatever you want. You see? It's, it's incredible. In other words, I can behave in any manner I want and there's no expectancy for me to behave in any other way. There's no problem here. You see? I don't have a boss. So Aristotle's belief is a strategy that avoids God telling me what to do. And that's really what they're all trying to avoid. So that is the third strategy. Okay, in the sense that God does not interact with man. And we know the Eser Sadivris where it says, I am the Lord your God, and took you out of Egypt, which means that I intervene in the affairs of man. So that's exactly against the whole belief of Aristotle. Fine, so that's a third possible belief system. Uh, then there are people who say, no, there's God, and he interacts. But you know what? He's limited. He's not omnipotent, all-powerful. He's certainly not omniscient, all-knowing, right? There are people that believe that. The classic one is Bilaam in the Torah. When the Bershom said to them, who are those guys outside? By Bilaam, right? So Bilaam said to them, that's interesting. God doesn't know who's outside. So the Bershom was allowing him to think that God is limited in his knowledge. Well, if God doesn't know everything, guess what? I can do whatever I want, because he doesn't know about it anyway. You see, that's another strategy of how to solve the dilemma. And, and, and there are people, in fact, somebody wanna, wrote a whole book, I didn't want to mention his name, it's such a meanest and so on, you know, that he felt that God is limited, in other words, God really is good, but he's not all-powerful, he's limited, and therefore evil exists. And he said, you have to have Rachmanus on God. That's what he said. It's a tremendous, uh, and he put, wrote a whole book about this, and so on, you know. That God is limited, he's not, he's not omnipotent at all. Or even though he is good, but he cannot help people who get sick. Because what can he do? He's not all powerful. That was his answer. But obviously, he is limiting God, and that is a strategy of how you can deal with God and do whatever you want. Then there are people, especially the Persians, Zoroastrianism, right, that believe that there are two gods. 
There's a God of good and there's a God of evil. So guess what? I'm going to follow the God, I'm going to follow the God of evil because then he's going to protect me. You see, what a cop-out. It enables a person to do whatever he wants because I will be protected by the God of evil. That's Zoroastrianism. That's the religion of Persia. So that, but we begin to realize that all of these belief systems fundamentally solve the dilemma that I want to do what I want to do, right? Don't tell me what to do. And therefore I don't have to feel inferior. Then, the next strategy, which was adopted by a great religions, many religions of the earth, and that's paganism or polytheism, the belief in many gods. Now, how is that a strategy? Because if there are many gods, each one has his own doctrine about what is right and wrong, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose my gods. Okay, I'm going to take his doctrine in terms of what I can do. That gods, that whatever, do it's like you know they tell you that you know Beishamah and Beishilel. You know you cannot pick the cooler of Beishamah and the cooler Beishilel. You can't do that. You know you got to be consistent. You know and so on. This guy takes the coolest. Coolest means the uh, leniencies, right, of all the pantheon of gods. There are fifty gods out there, and guy makes a whole list. Okay, I want to take the leniencies of all of them, right? No problem. You see, that's the beauty, I should say, of paganism. Because it basically allows you to do whatever you want. And most of the world actually adopted the whole concept of polytheism, which is multiple gods. You see. <clears throat> okay. So I've now mentioned six strategies. Am I done? No. There's still a couple of more beauties. Next strategy. You know what, you know, I, I want to murder. I really do, right? I want to get involved in all kinds of illicit licentiousness. Why not? Right? So you know what I'm going to do? But wait a minute, there's a God up there. They're saying, excuse me, you can't do this stuff. I'm going to make him do it. So the Greeks had this incredible idea. They took their God, Jupiter, and they had him molesting women. Right? And we know it says, Lihidamas Bedrochov, you have to imitate God. Exactly, that's a mitzvah. So they had people have their God murdering people, right? Licentiousness, thievery, all kinds of stuff. This is known in Greek and Roman mythology. And why was that great? Because if God is doing this, it's a mitzvah to do. Imagine converting this into a mitzvah, right? And we're talking about millions and millions of people that did this. Where they had their gods, and I, you know, and, and the one I get the greatest kick out of is Balpur, you know. I mean, these guys were just beyond belief, you know, uh, what their system was, you know. They would go into the temple and relieve themselves, you see. Forget about the bathroom. They do right in front of the statue, you know. Now, there's something odd about that. It still doesn't make any sense. What, what do you have, no bathrooms or something like that, you know? But they did it. This was their form of worship. Could you imagine the degradation when we think about that? Are they crazy? This is what you do? Because in a certain sense, if I can, if a person is, if I can relieve myself in front of God, I can do anything basically, you know? I mean, if this is what he caters to, this is what he enjoys, right? Well, there's a lot of stuff that he'll enjoy also besides that, you know? And so on, you know? But we begin to realize the incredible craziness of people, what they've done to their God. 
but it's all that it should return and I can do whatever I want. It's an incredible strategy. That's really all it is. Then there are people, okay, I can't make God do this stuff, but guess what? I'm going to make the avodah licentious, immoral. So what happens is that, uh, that's why so many religions, okay, have so many things to do with sex and licentiousness in the avodah itself. You know, and so on, especially in Rome, you know, because if the avoider, it's a mitzvah to do that stuff. That's how you worship God. You see? So again, that's an incredible strategy uh, in order to dismiss God and so on, you know. <clears throat> then we have, of course, Christianity. Now, what Christianity did was brilliant. What they did is they, God changed his mind. What's the problem here, right? He gave the Torah. Right? And he realized it's just too difficult for mankind. So all you have to do is believe in grace. And that's it. You have to believe that his guy, his child, whatever they want to call the guy, right? He died on the cross, right? You don't have to do anything else, basically. Oh, that's the concept of grace. And so, what do you mean? That means because he said that God changed his mind. That's all. He dismissed the whole Avaida. In other words, you don't really have things that you have to do. Because grace is enough just to believe is enough to get you into the future world. Brilliant, if you really think about that. And that's their strategy, you see, because that's really what they believe. And it was, they reduced all the, they don't have 613 commandments, they abrogated, which means they dismissed, removed all the, all the mitzvahs, basically, you see? And therefore, I don't have to worry about God is telling me, not at all, <clears throat> you know? Uh, so that's another strategy. And then I'll give you the last strategy, which I hold is really beautiful. What is that? You know, a guy does a sin and he feels bad, because he knows that God's looking at him and saying, excuse me, right? So you know, what's he going to do? So Nebuchadnezzar has to do tshuva. You know what I'm saying? It's unfortunate. He's got to do tshuva, he's got to go chachet and all that, right? And he's got to mean it, because God can read your mind. He knows if you're fooling around, right? So, Christianity came up with a brilliant solution. Forget about God atoning. A priest can atone for you. You see, you just go into the confession booth, right? And you confess to the priest, and he has the power of atonement. Now, we would say, so what's the problem? Because a priest has needs. You see? So, if you give me a thousand bucks, I will atone for you. You see? That's the problem. It was called indulgences. What happened is that the priests in the Middle Ages, they were getting rich. Why? Because they were charging for this feature. They were charging for this, you know. Imagine a priest says, hey, this week I got a special. <coughs> special. It's a sale, right? Normally it's at least $100 for a kapora, right? But this week I got a sale, right? You give me 150 bucks instead of 200 for two cents. No problem. Now, what they were doing was something even better. They were saying this, you know, you know what I'll do for you, you know? Right now, you're giving me your sins, and I'll give you the kapora, you know? But I'm going to give you something better. You give me now a hundred dollars, right? And a sin, and this will cover a future sin. You see? In other words, in a month from now, you're going to sin, and you will have a kapora retroactively from the time you gave me the check. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible, isn't it, you know? I mean, 
you know, Jews are smart. Why aren't we doing something like this, right? <laughs> why, why don't we do something like this? It, come on, you know how much money you can rake in, you know? So it comes out that you can have a kapora retroactively, you see? So it's like a carte blanche, a carte blanche to sin. What's the problem, right? This is what they did. In fact, this, the, these indulgences were so outrageous that Luther, who rebelled against the Catholicism, right, he began Protestantism and so on, you know, he, this was one of the things he nailed on the board, but a whole, I think, 92 or 94 different uh, uh, claims and so on, was the indulgences. It was ridiculous. And the church was getting fabulously rich, of course, you know. You know, it's like a credit card, you know, you give the guy money now and I can sin from here till a whole month, no problem. Because everything has a kapora already, you see. Anyway, what do we realize from this? This isn't by accident. People don't do this by accident. You think because they believe this? No, because it allows them a strategy to do what? To have your cake and eat it too. You can do whatever you want, you see. In other words, every one of these things provides an exit. An exit from the obedience of what God requires. This is what it does. Now, now that we understand that, we begin to understand Amalek. Amalek realized something. He said, wait a minute. The Jews have a religion which is different than every other belief system. There's no exit. The Jews say, we have commandments. God is moral. He's righteous, he's virtuous, and he's just. And you have to be obedient. And not only that, right? You will have to be accountable for what you do. That was unheard of in paganism. That's unheard of. There has to be an exit, right? We can't tolerate this. So Amalek realized that this is what the Jews do. Therefore, their religion became the most dangerous religion on the planet. That's what they realized. And therefore, we must destroy the Jews. But they realized, when we destroy them, it's going to cost us a fortune. Not only that, it's a suicide trip. But they didn't care. Their desire to eradicate Judaism was greater than the desire to live. Messias Nefesh. And if you think that was then, you will see that it only happened 60 years ago, the exact same thing. In other words, the, the knowledge that the Jews are destroying man, you see, because they're giving anybody a conscience, you know, and they're making them weak and a, 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 you know, a guilt, uh, and making them feel guilty, you know, cannot be. So Amalek said, we must destroy these people. It's not because they didn't believe in God, no. Every religion, as I pointed out, has an exit. Judaism doesn't have an exit. And therefore, they were willing to die to destroy the Jews, you see. And in fact, it says, and you know, it says that, uh, what was the thing of Amalek? Is that until then, everybody was afraid of the Jews because they destroyed Egypt, right? And Amalek went and, 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 and removed the, 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 the image of the Jews as invincible. It's like, and they give the example, you know, there's a hot tub and it's got scalding water, right? Right? So one guy jumps in and he gets burnt, but then he cooled it off because he got burnt, right? And then everybody else can use the shower, the bath, right? What do you mean scalded? 
because that's what the Amalek did. They jumped in to kill the Jews. Of course, they were eradicated. Yeshua destroyed them, right? But they showed that the Jews are not invincible. You see? But meanwhile, they got scolded. That's the marshal, which means that they were killed. And they didn't care. It was more important to eradicate the Jews, their religion, this type of uh, ideology, than their survival themselves. Incredible, isn't it? That's Amalek. You see, who also did something like that before Amalek? And the answer is Avram Avinu. Why did Nimrod hate Avram Avinu so much? I mean, he took Avram Avinu, he threw him into the furnace, right? And of course the Nisim was that he survived. But why did he hate the guy? You see, what's the problem? So Avram Avinu doesn't believe in your God. So what? But you're, uh, Nimrod was a pagan. Everybody believed in God. Ah, but Avram Avinu said, here's what he said. One, there's only one God. Monotheism. There's no pantheon of gods. One. Two, right? Not only is it monotheism, but God is just. He's virtuous. And you have to be obedient. What? No exit? He must die. And that's why Nimrod threw him into the fire. It was the first time in history that somebody defied a strategy, uh, you see, to avoid having to be obedient to God. Same idea, uh, you see. But Amalek, they were mostly nefesh for this belief, which we begin to realize is incredibly very important. <coughs> In other words, until then, everybody realized man doesn't serve God. It's God that serves man. That's the key. You, God, will do what I want because I have an exit, you see. <coughs> and basically, that's the philosophy of Haman. That, that is an incredibly dangerous philosophy. And we now understand why Amalek did what they did. You see, <clears throat> why they were willing to commit suicide, because that's how much they realized Judaism is such an incredible danger. You see, and that's why they paid for it, and they died, and, and so on. But why does God hate them so much? Because <clears throat> the greatest threat to, to a person that's religious God isn't worried about an atheist because someday he'll come back because only an idiot can be an atheist when you think about that you know uh, anybody who realizes the probability of the, this life forms originating on their own is an absolute on their own, is an absolute idiot and, and of course the, the, the problem evolutionists have never calculated the probabilities you see <clears throat> in fact I will tell you an interesting marshal okay it was out west, and they were all playing a poker game. You know, you're out west in the saloons, and all the cowboys are playing a poker game, right? And they were playing uh, poker, okay? And each one has a hand. So one guy said, okay, the, all the money is in the middle, throw it on your hand. Okay, so what happened? One guy threw it on his hand, and it was a, uh, a, a straight flush. Now, I, I, don't play, I, I don't know poker from the hole in the wall, right? But I think a, a, flu, a straight flush is, let's say, three, four, five, six, whatever it is, of the same suite, or clubs or whatever. A straight flush is incredible. I mean, could you imagine getting your five cards, you get a straight flush? So, guy threw it down, everybody you know, just said, forget it, right? And he was about to take the money, and the guy, guy sitting across the table said, excuse me, what are you doing? So what do you mean what I'm doing? Taking the money. Nobody's going to beat a straight flush. So the guy says, yeah. 
and he puts his hand down and it's a royal flush. What's a royal flush? A royal flush is I think 910 Jack Queen King. It's basically the same, but it's much higher, you know? So the guy, so he throws out a royal flush. So the guy says, you know, and the guy's astounded. So the guy with the straight flush jumps up, takes out his gun, and he kills the guy with the royal flush. And you can do this now, West, right? So they all look at the guy and say, what are you crazy? You know? Now, we don't care that you killed him, because if he cheated, he deserved to die out West, right? But how do you know he cheated? How do you know? You know, maybe legitimately, you had the straight and you had the royal flush. So the guy said, I'll tell you why. <clears throat> the chance, probability, that in this one hand, you can have a straight flush and a royal flush, is a one followed by 40 zeros. That means you would have to play one followed by 40 zeros amount of games, and only once would this occur. So which is more likely? That this was the one time where the guy cheated? Obviously, you know. One with 40 zeros is staggering. We cannot even, it's more than, you know, there's a quadrillion, quintillion, sextillion, septillion, octillion, nantillion, decitillion. Uh, we cannot believe that kind of a number, you know. Uh, that kind of a number, that's the probability, right? The probability to produce an insulin molecule, which is an incredibly complex protein that twists and turns, right, is a one followed by 80 zeros. Do you have any idea where one followed by 80 zeros? And I have to tell you, science recognizes that if something can occur once in a hundred times, only it is significant. You see? If something can occur once in a thousand times, then it's incredibly significant. It means it cannot be chance, it has to be because there's some real relationship here. And this is one followed, one followed by what, two zeros, three zeros? I'm doing one followed by 80 zeros. You see, that's almost the amount of atoms in the entire universe. That's an insulin molecule. The probability of a human being form, right, with the millions of chemical reactions in every cell, right, is a one followed by one and one half million zeros. Now, how long are you going to remain an atheist with that type of information, right? So devotion doesn't care so much if you're an atheist, because eventually you'll come back. But this is a different story, you know? To believe in God and make a choizik, mock God, that's a different story. Because you believe in God, Except you're mocking him by doing what? By providing an exit and basically doing whatever you want. Then you're finished. Because you already believe in God, you see? But it's a mockery of the commandments of God that you provide yourself a way out, which I've indicated with all these different belief systems. Therefore the Bansham says, a monarch must go. That type of a belief is one of the greatest poisons of religion. To believe in me, and to mock me, you know, to make choizik, as they say, right, is, forget it, it's not possible. That is the greatest enemy. And you know where you see that? You see that because it doesn't say, when God talks about Amalek, it doesn't say, and God says, because the hand of Amalek is against God. It says, the hand of Amalek is against the throne of God. He's against my sovereignty, not against me. And that's the danger of Amalek, you see. 
His hand is against my throne. And the throne is the symbol of sovereignty, rulership, right? Not against me, because he believes in God. That God cannot tolerate. It's one of the most dangerous beliefs of all, because it means that no matter, even if you believe in God, right? You can do whatever you want, which obviously can be an enormous amount of things. And that's why the Rebbeinu hates Amalek. You see, now think about that. He's Haman, right? He is the descendant of this nation that was willing to destroy themselves to eradicate Judaism, right? So Haman is the Grand Vizier. He takes a look and he sees Mordechai, right? He sees this guy, you know, and this Mordechai doesn't want to bow. Everybody else is bowing. Mordechai doesn't want to bow, bow, bow at all. So he doesn't understand this because it's to the benefit of Mordechai to bow to Haman because then if he can benefit tremendously because Haman will say, I like the fact that you honored me, I'm going to give you what you'd like. You see? So Haman realized, wait a minute, why isn't he bowing? Because he must have some type of ideology, right, that doesn't allow him to bow. Wait a minute, what about the exit strategy? Mordechai doesn't have an exit. What kind of religion is that that has no exit that even though he can benefit, he still won't bow. That's why he asked the guy, who is this guy? So the guy said, Yehudi. That the, 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 his, part of his uh, officer said, he's a Yehudi. So, so Haman said to him, what do you mean he's a Yehudi? Wait a minute. You mean that religion that puts no exit before even their own benefit still exists? Wait a minute. My forebears gave their lives to kill this religion. Therefore, I must kill Mordechai and all the Jews because that ideology still exists. That's why. So, and then it comes out that Haman wasn't doing it because he was mad at Mordechai. Why kill all the Jews? Because Haman said, I'm the ancestor of Haman and this was their heritage to kill this type of religion. I must kill all the Jews to eradicate that religion. That's why I wanted to kill all the Jews. So it's an ideological problem. Not because he hated the Jews, although I'm sure he did that also, you know. But once he understood that the religion of the Jews still has no exit, that's the most dangerous of all. And what did he do? And that's why he went to Ahasuerus. He said, actually, listen, you know, there's a lot of religions in this country, but they all have exits. There's a religion that doesn't have an exit. That's the most dangerous of all. And what can Ahasuerus? So that's why Ahasuerus couldn't say, well, what do you mean we've got 127 different cultures and religions? Because the religion of the Jew is different than every religion on earth. It has no exit. Uh, there's no way to cease to be obedient to God. And you know where you really see this? That was the why Haman hated and had to de destroy all the Jews. Uh, so we now understand, and now you understand Yichus, right? Why is the Megillah always referring to the Yichus of Haman? Haman ben Hamdoso, ben Hagagogi, and so on, you know? Because what he did is a Yichus digger thing. It's an ancestral tradition. You need to kill the Jews. Therefore the Megillah will basically many times identify him <coughs> not as Haman, but Haman ben Hamdosa Hoagogi Amaleki. Because that's the reason why he was doing it, basically. You see. 
So it was in order to accommodate, to fulfill the tradition of his people. And you know where you really see this? The Gemara says, why is Har Sinai called Sinai? Right? Where they gave the Torah. So the Gemara says, it's called Sinai because from that event called Matan Torah, Sino came to the world. Hatred came to the world. Huh? Why would hatred come to the world? Because until Matan Torah, there were exits all the time. But when God gave the Torah, there were 613 commandments uh, that you must observe. There's no exit, right? Uh, you need to be obedient. <coughs> There's accountability. That's why sinner came to the world. And that's a very profound chazal. Why? Because that chazal is the reason for anti-Semitism. Why is there anti-Semitism? There are many reasons. There's tremendous jealousy. There are a lot of reasons. But I feel the real reason is what the Chazal tell us. Because of Har Sinai. Why? Because why do the Goyim, the anti-Semites, hate the Jews? And the answer is, it's not the Jews that they necessarily hate. It's God that they hate. They don't want to be bossed. Don't give me a boss that I need to listen to this guy. I need to deny my vulnerability and my inferiority. Uh, that's what they hate. The problem is, the Jews are the ambassadors of God. We're the ones who receive the Torah. Alright? Oh, you represent God and that law or that concept that there's no exit? We hate you. That's the word ambassador. You know? <clears throat> so it comes out a very profound concept. The reason for anti-Semitism is because people hate God. Even though they won't say that. You see, all the religions say, what do you mean we hate God? Of course not. <coughs> but that's exactly why there's so many exit strategies in all the religions. So why should they hate God? There's a perfect way to get out of it. You see? <coughs> but if they were stuck, so to speak, they would hate God. You see, where do you see this? You think that this happened in the time of Homan, right? That's like uh, 2,300 years ago. That's a long time ago. It, can it happen today? Of course it can happen today. And let me get, show you what the repercussions of the, what happened today. Hitler, right? He hated the Jews. It was an obsession with him and the Jews. We're not talking about somebody. When the Romans killed Jews, it was basically a struggle for power and for cash. Why did nations want to conquer other nations? For tribute. It's money. Right? In the end, it's always money. Right? Not because they hated the, the, the nation, you know. Uh, even if they thought they were more cultured. But that doesn't justify killing people and all that. They wanted the money. <clears throat> Anti-Semitism was introduced to the world basically because of Christianity. Before Christianity, even if nations would war with the Jews and kill them, it was a matter of a power struggle. That's all. Money. Uh, you know, they're just like another nation that we want to control so we can, we can request tax and all that. But with the entry of Christianity, the hatred became for the people themselves, not for the money. Why? Because we rejected their exit plan. This is the problem. You know, we said, of course, that their guy, right, Yeshua, whatever, right, what are you talking about? We're the son of God. What kind of nonsense? How do you abrogate the Torah? And so on, you know. Uh, so we took away their exit. 
can't do that. So since the, and not only that, we have credibility because we're the people of the book. <coughs> we are the nation of Israel. That's who we are. We're the original Jews. <coughs> we're the ones who took the Torah from God. So we have credibility, you see, because we are the nation of God. As God himself attests, you are my nation, you see. So when we took away their exit plan, you see, of course they hated us, you see. So that's when anti-Semitism grew to an unbelievable. And that's why basically the Christians have been killing Jews for 2,000 years. That's a long time to be butchered. And over the years, I mean, if you take a look at the New Testament, which of, you know, of course you shouldn't, and so on, right? You can't believe the amount of, uh, of mighty shemra, of defamation against the Jewish people. And throughout Christian history, how many priests uh, would denigrate the Jews and call them, you know, vipers and the sons of Satan. And I don't even want to say well, how, what else they, they said about the Jews. Why? What kind of hatred is that? You know what I'm saying? Because we took away their exit plan. <coughs> we said, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You can't abrogate the Torah. It's a document that goes on forever. As it says that, you will not diminish from it. You want to add to it. It's unchangeable, <coughs> you see. <coughs> so we invited enormous hatred for thousands of years, you see. They see wonder, well, how many Jews died? How many Jews did they kill over the 2,000 years? I will tell you a remarkable statistic. Uh, and then you can begin to understand what has been happening for 2,000 years. What Christianity has done. <clears throat> Historians estimate that at the time of the Romans, 2,000 years ago, there were approximately 8, 10 million Jews. There were a lot of Jews in those days. Okay. <clears throat> now, historians also estimate how many Chinese were there. Okay. 25, no. 25 million Chinese. That's what they estimate. Whatever they base it on and so on, right? 25 million Chinese, <clears throat> 10 million Jews. Okay. How many Chinese are there today? One and a half billion. Yeah. Well, by now it's either 1.3, 1.4, 1.5 billion people. That's a lot of people, uh, right? But wait a minute, what's interesting here is that, you know, okay, so if you go from 25 to one and a half billion, right? So what's that an increase of? You know, 40 times the original amount, right? But wait a minute, Jews have 10 million people, right? And they had the same, you know, uh, uh, population reproduction. So from 10 million, right, there should be probably at least 500 million Jews just based on population dynamics. Think about that, right? Just multiply the same thing. If the Chinese 2,000 years ago were 25 million, and now there's like whatever, one and a half billion, whatever, and then Jews who started with 10 million should be at least five, 600 million Jews, you know? Could you imagine how many shuls there would be? Because every Jew has to have two shuls, one that he davens in and one that he doesn't daven in, right? So there's gotta, gotta be millions and millions of shuls. You know how many rabbis that is? <laughs> uh, okay, so the question is, what do you mean 500, uh, 500 million Jews? That, that's crazy, you know? How many Jews are there in the world today? 14 million Jews. This doesn't make any sense. How can you start off 2,000 years ago with 10 million Jews, and 2,000 years later, you only added 4 million Jews? Not only that, 
We go back before the Chinese. We go back to Avraham Avinu, right? Uh, so we shouldn't have 500 million Jews. <coughs> we should have a billion Jews. How in the world is it possible that we only have 14 million Jews? Do you think about that? And the answer is, because all of those people have been slaughtered over the years by basically the Christians. Because they, the, they have been the major slaughter of the Jews for 2,000 years. Pogroms, inquisitions, crusades, <clears throat> you know, uh, expulsions. You have any, we, we, we cannot even imagine the threat living in Europe in those days. You know, we're in Eretz Israel, we're safe. Or even in America, you know, they don't do this kind of stuff, right? But if you were living in, in Europe, you know, in France, or any of the countries of Europe, you, your life wasn't worth a plug nickel, as they say, you know? You could be killed, just a pogrom, you know? All of a sudden they don't like what a Jew did, all of a sudden the, the local priest, okay guys, let's get the Jews. Then you talk about the Inquisitions. You know, how many Jews died in inquisitions, you know? And then you talk about, uh, not just, uh, not only inquisition, you know, but the crusades, the expulsions, it's unbelievable what went on, you know? It's like a slaughterhouse. And the Jews always have to worry about, will they be killed? It's not just them, they, their wife, their kids. We, 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 don't, we do not live with that fear. But this was the fear Jews had for thousands of years. So this is what the sinner did. They've killed hundreds of millions of Jews by destroying the Jews and therefore, well, if there's only 14 million left, I mean, you know, every time we grow more, right, there's a slaughter. And what happened with the Holocaust? Six million Jews. So the Jews went from 12 or 13 or 14 million Jews, they went down to 8 million Jews. So we got to start all over again. Uh, why? And the answer is because of the Jewish religion. Because people don't want to have a boss. Don't tell me what to do. You don't have an exit strategy, I will kill you. Amalek, right, or Haman, they just, what they did is they were Moisinefesh, which is beyond what even we can imagine. That's why God hates them, that they were willing to die for this cause. Now, does this have a modern day equivalent? Yes. Hitler. Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf. He hated the Jews. As soon as the SS got to a city, first thing they did was they gathered the Jews and killed them. No problem, right? Forget about conquering. <coughs> it was the Jews. Okay. And I'll tell you something very interesting. There's a book written called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shira. I read that many years ago. It's a long book, thousand pages. But in that book, there were certain fascinating statistics that he brings down, and I will give you one of them. Uh, where the generals came to him at the end of the war, Hitler, and they said in 44 or 45, we are losing the war, it's over. You're talking about a third Reich for a thousand years, we're not gonna make it past the year. Uh, so he said to them, well, what's the problem? So they told him, they told Hitler, the generals, the reason why is because we're not able to send troops to the front. Why? Because you're taking all the cars, railroad cars, and shipping the Jews, you know, to the concentration camps. It's like every railroad is doing just that. Uh, we need to get our troops to the front. So he said, we need to do that, or else forget it. You know what Hitler told him? Get lost. He didn't care. To him, killing the Jews was more important 
than the thousand year Reich, that he, third Reich, that he wanted to establish. It's incredible. And he knew that they're losing the war. It, doesn't that sound like suicide to you? But why? Because Hitler is a Gilgal of Homan. And there's many codes that indicate that. Uh, he was willing to do the same thing. And in the Mein Kampf, he writes, uh, Why do I hate the Jews? Uh, because they have made us weak. They have given us a conscience. Guilt. You see, who does that sound like? That's exactly what Homan said. That's exactly what Amalek. Hitler is an Amaleki, and he was willing to die in order to destroy the Jews. He was obsessed. And eventually what happened with him? Of course, he committed suicide because he lost the war. Uh, but it boggles the mind. It doesn't make sense. Here's a man that gave up everything for a third Reich to last a thousand years, which is what he said. And he's willing to give all of it up, the end of Germany, to kill the Jews. He wouldn't stop until the last Jew was dead. You believe it's kind of psychotic? It's unbelievable. What explains that obsession? Amalek. Because uh, these people realize that the most dangerous religion on earth in that sense is Judaism because there's no exit. That's what, and that's the concept of why people hate the Jews. Because in the end it doesn't allow man to really do what he wants to do. And we know that. In fact, as far as Judaism is concerned, the only real way to be what? The only real way to be somebody is to be a nobody before God. Think about that. It's a paradox. The more nobody you are before God, the greater somebody you will be. Because then devotion will allow you to experience Him in Ilm Habo. It's a paradox, you see. <clears throat> but of course, mankind cannot do that. You know where you really see that, which is also very interesting? You know, uh, you notice how many times in the Torah it says, and God spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu saying, right? And then it said Moshe did whatever he did. And it says, Ka'ashetzivo Hashem es Moshe. As God commanded Moshe. Why does it say that all the time? It says that by Moshe, by Klai Yisrael, by Aaron. And it's always saying, and Moshe did whatever God commanded him. Ka'ashetzivo Hashem es Moshe. As Moshe did, as what God commanded him. Why? Because that's what Judaism is. You don't do what you do. You do what God wants you to do. Moshe Rabbeinu never took an exit. Uh, you see? He never took an exit. He never said, well, you know, I don't really agree with this. You know, I'm not really sure it's going to conflict with me. You know, my status with the Jews or whatever. You know, it's going to cost me money, whatever. No, he did exactly what God wanted. Uh, because in Judaism, there's no exit. There's just obedience, and there's accountability. And then there's experience the Rabbanism himself. Uh, that's why the Torah is always praising Moshe Rabbeinu with that way. And it, it happens uh, over and over again in the Torah, uh, you know, and so on. That's a very important idea. Now, <clears throat> Chazal <clears throat> realized this. Homan is the story of these two ideologies. The Jews and Homan's ideology that you have an exit, you can do basically what you want. Of course you have to justify it with a fancy philosophy of why. Uh, and therefore, what Chazal realized something. You know, normally when you have an enemy, right? What do you want to do? You want to 
fight the enemy, kill them, whatever, if that's what's necessary, right? Uh, but where is the enemy? The enemy is all over. So you fight them on the outskirts, you know, in the villages, the towns, wherever they're located, you know? But that's not going to win you the war. What will win you the war? You got to go to their headquarters and kill them. Because as long as their headquarters, right, <clears throat> as long as that exists, they're going to sprout up again. You see, you got to cut the head of the hydra. In Greek mythology, there's a mythical snake called a hydra. The hydra is a multi-headed snake. The problem with the hydra, and that was whatever, Hercules' task, whatever, right? That's one of his tasks in their Greek mythology. Anyway, the problem with the hydra is every time he cut off a head, two sprout back. So it's, it's, it's a losing proposition, you know? The, the snake is coming at you with a, like 20 heads, and every time you cut off a head, there's another two that pops up. After a while, you're facing a beast, you know, a snake with 50 heads. So what did he do? So he had to find out the head. What's the real head? You see, you cut that off, the snake's dead. You see, and uh, whatever, the legend, you know, whatever, so right? The only way to win an enemy is you gotta cut off the head. How? You need to destroy the headquarters. <coughs> right? Now, Chazal realized there are two miracles here. Not one. You know, <clears throat> the miracle is not only that the Jews were able to fight the Persians. You see, that itself is an incredibleness. You do about a whole empire trying to kill the Jews. <clears throat> right? But the secondness is that the Bonisham allowed the Jews to exterminate the head. And that's Shushan, because that's where Homan lived, and that's where all basically his whole family and all the Amalekites lived. In Shushan. That was their headquarters. You see? So it's one thing the Bonisham allows Xera, and it's, I will allow the Jews to kill the enemy. Fine. Uh, but for God to make a nest where he will allow you to kill the body of the headquarters, that's an incredible nest. That means that Haman or Amalek has been eradicated from a Shirish. That's very rare. You see? <clears throat> very rare. So the Chazal realized, the rabbis realized that, wait a minute, we're not looking at one miracle. You see, even if we destroyed Persians and Amalekites all over the place, fine. But as long as we don't kill in Shushan, where the headquarters are, because that's where Haman lived. That was the capital, right? They're going to sprout up again, you see. So the fact that they saw that the Muslim allowed them to kill in Shushan, that was the headquarters. So they realized that the Xero was incredible for the Jews. That God not only allowed them to kill the enemies, Persians and uh, Amalek all over Persia, uh, but he allowed them to destroy Haman and all the Amalekis. That's a double miracle. So that's why Chazal said, Shushan isn't another place. It's another victory. It is the victory of the Jew over that ideology. And which is interesting, because after Purim, uh, as far as I know, you never find an individual who's an Amaleki. They disappeared. The last threat, as far as I know, of an Amaleki is then, Purim. Right? After that, it was Greece, it was Rome, and all that. But it wasn't the Amalekites in any form. It's true that the ideology or the philosophy of Amalek went to people, but not the people themselves. You see? So what they did in Purim was a mudigness. 
they killed Amalek, basically. So, but the problem is the ideology still exists. So therefore, it's not like the Bansham says, you know, everything is done. Because as long as the, um, the, uh, the Amalekite or the Amaleki philosophy, right, then it's still not complete. But the next one is that they killed the people that traditionally wanted to kill them. You see. What about Hitler, who's an Amaleki? He's a Gilgal. <laughs> He's not the original guy. He was never descended from them. But a Gilgal can happen, you know. He's the Gilgal and all his ten ministers, I don't know if you know the code, and they're all these sons of Ammon, uh, which I don't know if you realize that what the codes are. There's an incredible code about this whole thing and so on, you know? But uh, code, code in the Purim itself. <clears throat> but in any case, what we see is a very important idea. That's why there are two days of Purim, you see. Because the fact that there are really two Nisim, one bigger than the other. That's why Shushan Purim is bigger, really, in many ways, than Chutzler is thinking Purim. Now, why fortified city? Why that? Why do other fortified cities have to observe or should observe Shushan Purim, right? Because you think about that. Because whenever there are headquarters, it's always walled and fortified. There's no such thing as a headquarters that's not fortified, because it's the headquarters. And the fortification in those days, right, is walls. So in order to stress, right, that I want to tell you this, Chazal Atan, that we destroyed Amalek, the Gufai, then every city that is walled and fortified represents Shushan, and that's the headquarters, that's when you have to observe Purim, you see. And that's why we have that, you see. Uh, so what do we see? We see that there are many, that uh, Purim is an incredible, uh, incredible event for the Jews, where Amalek was destroyed at its root, you know, but also what is destroyed is the incredible shita of Amalek. It has to be, you have to conform to the Bodhislam. And this was what they realized. And as a result of that, we of course observe Purim and we commemorate Purim and we of course we celebrate. And that's really what the celebration is. The celebration ultimately is not just that we were saved, but that what the celebration indicates is that the religion of the Jews, which is complete and total obedience to the Rabbanishlam, you see, is the essential concept of Judaism's message to the whole world. Don't think that you can determine and decide what you want to do. No. Uh, you know, you're either here or you're making believe, you're fooling around. You know, <clears throat> what Judaism says is the world really basically has to be one thing. You have to observe Yiddishkeit, Judaism, completely. You have to devote yourself to the Bansham and try as hard as you can, of course, to curb the Yitzhahara, because the Yitzhahara is always trying to get you to stop. That we know. But okay, that's a human uh, you know, uh, conflict and so on, you know? Uh, but the religion cannot be tampered with. Man serves God, not that God serves man. That's a very important idea. And Purim is really the illustrator of that. And it, <clears throat> it's really the, the, the holiday that says these ideas. As it says, Moshe. Moshe did exactly what God said. He didn't deviate an iota for the Moshe. And that's, a very, and that's why the Torah is always saying that. 
you know, we won this sometime. What else is he going to do? No. Because maybe Moshe Rabbeinu is his mind, like, okay, maybe I'll deviate and I, a little, an iota. Not exactly, you know. No, he never did that. Because that's really what Judaism is all about. And that's really what Purim is all about. And that's really what we should remember on the Kriyas Megillah. That we're looking at people, uh, Judaism, that is complete antithesis, not only of Amalek, they were willing to give their lives. But Judaism is the antithesis of every religion in the world. Because every religion, as I pointed out, I went to ten of them, you know, has a strategy where they can somehow insert what they want to do. And therefore that's a very important idea. And I think all the questions are basically answered in that sense. <clears throat> and uh, let us hope that, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're approaching Purim, which is a Vanahapechu, and, uh, and certainly that uh, this Purim, hopefully, uh, you know, Mashiach will be here, and we can then all go back to really what uh, we really have to do. Thank you. Hey, how you doing? Wow. And uh, Oh, any questions? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. was the demonstrable destruction of Egypt. the Mitzrayim. Yes. There was no question, the whole world saw it. Purim was the nascenister. In a sense, you might say that Purim was even greater because it wasn't demonstrable. It happened, Chance. and the Jews were able to destroy a Molech who had the power, who had the armies. What's your question? How many Jews died in the fight against <coughs> the Molech during Purim? Um, it doesn't really say, but I imagine, you know, uh, probably there were, I'm sure there were. But you see clearly that the victory was really overwhelming because it says many of them were misyadim. Also, many people want to become converts to Judaism. That tells you that the victory was overwhelming. You know, because if it wasn't, uh, why would anybody become Jewish? So what? But the Goyim saw, you know, wait a minute, how is this possible that the Jews are victorious? You know, and how many are there anyway? You know, they realized, they themselves realized that the Jews are being given a tremendous divine assistance power, yeah. Because that's why Misyadim, and that's why many Goyim became Jewish. Do we have any, uh, any idea how many Amalekim were killed? No, I, I, I don't know. No. I mean, maybe the historians trying to figure it out, but you know, I'm not aware. What was that? The what? That the, <coughs> it says over there how many they killed in the Megillah. Oh yeah, in the Megillah it says yeah, 500. So, 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 so yeah. Five hundred adds that that's all Amalekim, not just Persians. Okay, yeah, yeah, the Megillah does say five hundred. Uh, no, yeah, different. Shushan, yeah, yeah. Like in Shushan, yeah, the, the Megillah does say, you yeah. know, and so on, you know. Yeah. Why uh, uh, <coughs> didn't they? Um, one thing I maybe I just missed it, but why why did they just destroy a Malik uh, at the time of Yeshua? It says by Yahushua. So the so the Chaz, the the Chazal say God prevented Yeshua from killing them all. Well, like why, why, like why? Because it, uh, because that philosophy, okay, 
um, for whatever reason has to be available for people to freely choose. The Rosham will not eradicate the possibility of free will. And if he would have killed all those guys, that would have been the end of that philosophy that people were willing to kill, uh, to kill themselves in order to eradicate the Jews, right? Uh, and it's too early, because the world still had to go on and on. The Rosham does not want to remove the option of that belief. You see? So then why did Hashem ask Shovel to just dump him out? Because at that point in time, it was okay. Because Shoal was Mashiach ben Yosef. See? In fact, had Shoal not done, uh, then he, he, he could have been Mashiach ben Yosef. And David, although, Mashiach ben David, whatever, and so on, you know? But since he failed with Agog, right? Mm -hmm. So therefore, that, that was taken away from him. Why well, was it okay then and not back then? Because only because Shoal could have been Mashiach. What was that? Only because Shaul could have been the Sheikh. Yeah, he was sure. That's why he was Ben Yomim, Rochel. You know, the Sheikh Ben Yosef, you know. But anyway, the Muslim doesn't always eradicate because there's no free will then, there's no options. In order for you to have free will, you have to have options to choose. You know, it's like they say in Russia, right? Everybody can vote whoever they want. The only problem is there's only one guy running. Right? There's, there's, no, there's no options. So what, what does your free will mean? So. That's why, you know. Yeah. Why is the thing of the old city based on empty? What was that? Why is the thing of the old city based on empty side not the I can't see it. What? The thing of El Khoma of Sushal is based on empty side from from the time of Yeshua, not yeah. based on Sushal Sarah. Correct. So you wanna why? Why did you go realized that Eretz Israel, right, doesn't have a fortified city at the time of Shushan. Most of the cities were destroyed. Okay? So that would be a degradation to Eretz Israel. You know, that the, because if you think about it, the major destruction of Amalek, right, is an incredibly spiritual thing. And if anything, Eretz Israel should celebrate in Shushan, which is a spiritual destruction of Amalek. You see? So what they did is they included, uh, so they went back in order not to degrade Eretz Yisrael because they didn't have a wall then in Shushan but they did have a wall by Yehoshua so they, that's why that's why they include Eretz Yisrael you know. yeah. would, would you say that the Arabs that they go with from the serious Nefesh to try to kill the Jews that that's the spirit of Amalek? Uh, it's so an interesting question uh, it's an interesting question yeah uh, it would seem that that is uh, the fact that they're willing to kill themselves, suicide, is some type of indication uh, that there is a chilek of Amalek, yeah. That would, uh, that's right. Because they, they, they're willing to kill themselves, yeah. So yeah. that's the same explanation that now Iran is also in the same pursuit of killing all the Jews. It's the repeatance of, of uh, the Megillah. Yeah, uh, well, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it is, it is. Iran is the original Persia. Coming back again. Correct. Well, the Zoya says that all these guys are going to come back again. All the Rishoyim. That's why I believe uh, Saddam Hussein was a Gilgul of Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> Think about that, you know. In fact, he said he was. <laughs> yeah, Saddam Hussein said he was a Gilgul of Nebuchadnezzar, which, if you think about it, doesn't make sense because Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan, right? And Saddam Hussein, he's not a pagan. He was a, either a Sunni, I think probably a Sunni, and so on, you know. So why would he say? that he's a Gilgal of a pagan. 
And the answer is because that's probably who he was. A Gilgal of Nebuchadnezzar. You know? It's like he prophesied and had no idea that he was right. You know? But the Zoya says that all these people, Haman, the Gilgal of Haman was clearly Hitler. You know? And uh, Saddam Hussein is Nebuchadnezzar. All these guys that had a share in destroying the Jews. The Zoya says the Bansham sends back, they finish their job, and then the Bansham finishes them off. So he does. It's called the ultimate payback. Yeah. Hashem said that the, he would multiply us, right? Like the he would what? Multiply the Jews. Like yes. The stars like yeah, the that's right, yeah. And, and why the Chinese are multiplied <coughs> and not us? The answer is because of the sins of the Jews. Chinese, uh, you know, God, remember, the Bosham has an interest in preserving the life, the existence of every Jew, you see? And he does that with much more severe oinchim than he does with Goyim. He's much more careful. In fact, it says that in the Dovid HaMelech and Tilam, I will praise you because you were angry with me. And therefore, you always made sure to discipline me. You know what I'm saying? That's why. So unfortunately, a lot of it means that God has to keep recycling the Jewish neshama. Takes you out, brings you back, takes you out, brings you back, and all that kind of stuff. Where God says, you'll be few in numbers by the curses. Yeah. So, and that's, that's the Anoga. Yes? What's the exit strategy of Islam? The who? Islam. strategy of Islam. I'm not hearing what? The exit strategy of Islam? Uh, if, you, if you look at the Quran, Allah says, kill the Jews. It's Allah that says it. Look behind the tree, you know, and you find a Jew, kill him. Excuse me. They have their God saying that murder is fine for the sake of, of, of Islam. Whoever heard of something like that, you know? Um, so therefore, they, they, their strategy number, whichever number I said, seven, where they have their God you know, actually behaving in a manner that they want to behave. You see? Yeah. Um, don't we have an exit strategy Shuba, Tfila, and Sidaka? Uh, we have a what? An exit strategy of Shuba, Tfila, and Sidaka. It's our exit strategy. You know, I wish everybody would take that exit strategy. <laughs> would that be, we would look different if everybody did Shuba, Tfila, and Sidaka. You know, but it's not an exit strategy. It's where you have to say to yourself, I was wrong. That's not exit. I got away with it. None. Maybe. No, of course not. No, you can get away with it. You know? It's not called an exit strategy where you have to say to yourself, I was wrong. It's a tremendous admission of guilt and error. Nobody wants to do that. No. Second is, why was why was Haman's zocher to be a Gilgul? He could he had another chance. Who Haman? Yeah, he had another chance at life. He could have maybe not become a Hitler. And started with Libya. The Rav talks about people get oblivion who are evil, and now Haman gets his second shot at it. He gets Imi to and through Hitler. Now there's another second shot. He could have been an amazing person. You know, like I said, you can think of it in several ways. One is that, the, like I said, the Zoya says that these guys are going to come back to finish the job, you know? Uh, and, and, and then the God will eradicate him and, and so on, you know? That's part of why a lot of the evil people are resurging, you know, resurrecting themselves to destroy the Jews. And, uh, and uh, although <clears throat> the question is, do they have free will? 
did Hitler have free will? That's a really a very interesting question, you know, and so on, you know. I believe he did, but he didn't care, you know. He had a need, a drive, but he could have said no to his need or drive. He could have said, wait a minute, why not look at the incredible contributions that the Jews gave to civilization? I mean, if you look at it, what the Jews did for civilization, you know, is incredible. If, they, if you remove, I once read an article, if you remove the, 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 uh, the uh, contributions that the Jews did to civilization, you would not believe what civilization would look like. Basically cavemen. Think about that. You know, even in this, I'm not talking about if they're religious or not. I mean, you think about, you know, between Freud, Einstein, Marx, and so many people who have been Jewish, uh, you know, it's just beyond belief what Jews have done. Yet the world doesn't care. Notwithstanding the incredible contributions of the Jews to civilization, the world doesn't care. It's astounding that the world will limit the Jews by giving away part of Eretz Israel to the Arabs. The Arabs have not contributed a thing to civilization in the last 500 years. They once did. They were once incredible civilization. But they have not done anything in the last 500 years, you know? Yet the world and Israel, every day, it's another contribution in medicine. It's, it's only field. Technology. So, uh, technology. So how can you want to limit Israel and give it to Arabs that do nothing? I'm not even talking about the, you know, what is their claim, which is nonsense. You know, it's, biblic uh, it's uh, biblically, uh, you know, uh, historically, biblically, ideologically, it's, uh, of course, the whole claim is nonsense, you know. But th that's what the world is. The world is irrational. The hatred that the world has for the Jew is because of the hatred of the religion of the Jew. That's what it is. They hate, that's why the Chazal say, Sinai is called Sinai because of Sina. You see, you know. Yeah, uh, you, want, you have a question, right? Yeah. What's your question? Question, uh, isn't it uh, maybe the reason of this hatred, uh, it is a jealous? No, that's also, I'm not, I, I mentioned that, of course it is, yeah. But I'm saying when deep down, it's more than just jealousy, you know. It's what the Jew stands for, because the Jew is the people of the Bible, it's more than that, yeah. They, and so on, you know. Anything else? What? Last one, I promise. Is uh, the fact that Amalek, uh, Amalek had such a conscience that they had to destroy Israel to remove that conscience from them? Does that show that they have a greater spiritual potential than, let's say, Rome? <clears throat> said, oh, we'll eat, drink, marry, tomorrow we'll die. That had they made a different choice, they could have been a greater power. I don't see why it would show they, they would be more. Everybody was pagan in those days. So everybody had a spiritual not, feeling. Not everyone had to go kill the Jews because they were so bothered that Jews and God existed. Only Amalek. Yeah, because uh, the Jews were about to receive a Torah which would have incredibly altered their belief system. It would have made them very difficult to do what they want to do. And they realized that. And when the Jews left Egypt, they already knew what the Jews were, that, that the, the, the whole spiritual religion of the Jews was an incredible anathema to their belief system. You know, they, and they said, we don't care, we need to kill the Jews. So what makes anyway. it different from, let's say, Rome or a different pagan Bec religion? Oh, because they were willing to die. To, that's why. It, it was the Messias Nefesh. Hitler, remember I said? Hitler was willing to destroy Germany. Hitler is the greatest betrayer of Germany. They don't realize. He betrayed Germany. 
because Germany wanted to survive. So, right? So how do you stop your army from, from um, uh, going to the front? You're too busy killing Jews. He knew that, but he didn't care. It comes out that Hitler was an unbelievable traitor to Germany. Mm. Who heard of that? You put, you know? Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Is that it? Okay.